Good morning, 1548 Heights members and friends online and in person. Grace and peace to you in abundance. Our mission at 1548 Heights is to be a transforming church, changing lives for God and for good as God transforms us into the image of Jesus. And it is great to be on mission with you. How about this weather? I'm telling you, it's incredible. Sam and Sagan Benner flew all the way down from Canada just because they heard we're having a weekend like this. Uh, They never saw it in four or five years here, right? No, but it's great to see Sam and Sagan Benner and their three children now with us. We love you guys, and it's wonderful to see you. You know, I said to our good brother, Bruce Allen, today, Bruce, weather like this is almost enough to make me forgive Houston for the summer we just had. And Bruce said, well, I'm not there yet. (laughs) So let's pray for our brother Bruce that he would be more like our Lord Jesus and more forgiving in his heart. (laughs) Okay, I, I need to give you a little heads up about some things. Tonight there will be a little party, you know, at 5 o'clock to sort of express appreciation, get things off your chest if you need to, uh, regarding Angela's and my eight years here. And, you know, it could be a little, uh, a little teary. Angela's probably going to cry. Um, I won't. But don't be, don't take that personally. I, I, I wish I could cry. I really do. I mean, if I do, take a picture. We'll send it to my daughters because they don't think it can happen. But uh, I will be very moved, I'm sure. And then we'll finally, you know, get through that. And, you know, you'll say, well, that was a little tedious. But uh, we wish them the best. And then we won't leave. We'll be here another week, and he'll be back on Sunday, the next Sunday. Because in a fit of inspiration, which is the flip side of lunacy, I said, wait, let me preach one more week. Because I have invited friends from the last 20 years who live in Houston to be here because I want to show you guys off. I want to just to share what we have done together and become together with friends we've had for 20 years. So, um, so far about 31 have said yes. Now, I don't know if more are coming, but they didn't want to publicly commit. I just issued an invitation on Facebook. Uh, for those of you who are under 40, Facebook is a, is a uh, uh, what is it? <laughs> an online medium, but uh, you guys have moved on to something else now. But at any rate, I don't know, any, you know how many people are going to be here, but I want us to treat it like a friends and family day, you know, just really put our best foot forward and welcome people and, and celebrate our church family, and I think it's going to be an awesome Sunday. So let's just give you a heads up. We're not leaving after the party tonight. Can I get an amen to that, please? Um, Okay, we're continuing. This is the last message in a series uh, from the last six weeks called Encountering Jesus. I've been using a book by uh, Rebecca McLaughlin. Is it Rebecca? Yeah, Rebecca, called Confronting Jesus, Nine Encounters with the uh, with the hero of the Gospels, we talked about encountering Jesus, the teacher, the healer, the lover, the missionary, the Savior. And today we'll talk about encountering Jesus, the Lord. Let's read together, as we always do, the Word of God, John 
chapter 11, verse 1 through 6, and then we'll skip a little bit and 17 through 27. There's a bulletin you probably got when you came in that's got a little outline on, in the middle of it. If you find that helpful to follow along, I invite you to, to utilize that. John 11, 1 through 6, 17 through 27. Listen to the word of the Lord. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and his, her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent a message to Jesus, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death, rather it is for God's glory, so that the Son of God may glorified through it, may be glorified through it. Accordingly, though Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, after having heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And then we have some conversation between Jesus and his disciples, and then we pick it up again, verse 17. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, some two miles away, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them about their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him while Mary stayed at home. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. Thanks be to God for his word and for his living word, Jesus Christ. Jesus is Lord is not an uncommon expression. I just picked some pictures that we might see in the course of our day. Here's one on a church sign. Jesus is Lord. Then here's one. Jesus is Lord. Looks like it's uh, some kind of store. And then here's another one. Someone superimposed it over a beautiful sunset. I kind of like this one. The billboard says, Jesus is Lord and you know it. And then Jesus Christ is Lord. Not a swear word. <laughs> and so make this note, friends. Jesus is Lord is the shortest creedal affirmation in the New Testament. It's the shortest creedal affirmation in the New Testament. Creedal meaning something people expressed as, as a way of sort of uh, articulating their faith. Uh, and we have many creedal statements in the New Testament, but this is the shortest. And affirmation means something we can all affirm together to lock hands in our common belief. And so, for instance, every year around Easter, many Christians appropriate a creedal affirmation, He is risen. We say that to one another, He is risen. And it just sums up everything we're thinking about and celebrating on that, during that season. 
And so Jesus is Lord is the shortest creedal affirmation in the New Testament, but perhaps more importantly, it's one of the earliest. One of the earliest. Scholars just, you know, would say, hey, as soon as people began to gather together as the body of Christ, the followers of Jesus, the risen Lord, they would, they would start to articulate ways to affirm one another's faith and, and, and embody the, their communal identity. And this is one of the earliest ones they used. Jesus is Lord. Now, it's also a way to sort of identify who's a part and who's not. Do you believe Jesus is Lord? Well, I don't know. Okay. But there are many of us who do. Jesus is Lord. Uh, I've heard, and I I think this is more than a a legend, that many Christians in the early church, the early days of uh, the spread of the gospel, you know, they couldn't be public with their faith. So, uh, as I understand it, they would, you know, draw with their toe a little symbol of a fish. And so we see that on the backs of cars sometimes as people are driving rudely in traffic, <laughs> you know. And that fish was a symbol. Well, how did that come about? I mean, yeah, Jesus fished and all that. It's pretty, pretty central in the Gospels, but... Uh, How did that come about? Well, guess what? The Greek word for fish is ichthus. And the early Christians came up with an acronym. Ichthus, Jesus Christ, God, Son, Savior. And so they were were, uh, uh, sort of articulating a creedal affirmation, sometimes uh, undercover during times of uh, persecution. And so early church had creedal affirmations, and this is one of the earliest Jesus is Lord. Paul will say, and many of you in your Bibles, in Philippians 2, verse 6 through 11, the, the wording here is set apart, and that's your Bible publisher's way of saying, this may have been a hymn, a hymn. Have this mind in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. And being found in human likeness, he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess what? That Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And early Christians may have sung this in their assemblies, just the way Bill led us in singing today. They probably didn't do it as skillfully as Bill did or, or with a guitar, but those were creedal affirmations. Some of you who grew up in the church will recognize this song Jesus is Lord. My Redeemer, how He loves me, how I love Him. He is risen, He is coming. Lord, come quickly, Alleluia. And so we too have these kinds of affirmations. Well, Here's another slide. What does this mean? What does it mean? Uh, 
that Jesus is Lord? Well, I'm going to suggest, at the least, it means three things right in this context of the first century. Let's take a look at them. Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. Not Caesar. This is very important. So you can think of this as which word is emphasized. Jesus is Lord. Because you see, uh, in the late part of the first century, an emperor named Domitian, who ruled from 81 to 96 AD, and has been described by historians as ruthless but efficient. And he cultivated a kind of emperor cult and demanded that the people acknowledged him as a god. You see, you thought Trump was bad. <laughs> you know, uh, can we joke a little bit about politics here? <laughs> but but uh, you must acknowledge me as a god. And eventually rituals were imposed, and people had to bow down before symbols of Emperor Domitian. And Christians, guess what? Saw this as a direct conflict of their testimony that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. And as you can imagine, Domitian wasn't very happy about that. And so to say Jesus is Lord is always not only, but at least, a political statement that Jesus is Lord, not the various emperor figures or politicians or great people, not even Taylor Swift, okay, that, that uh, we venerate or come close to. And so it means first, Jesus is not Caesar. Second, Jesus is Lord now and forever. Not Jesus will be Lord. Jesus has been Lord. Jesus is Lord. Jesus in place. His Lordship is operative, and it will not end until every knee in heaven and on earth bows and every tongue confesses Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. What does that mean? The supreme authority. The supreme authority. The one to whom all must give account. The one whom all must acknowledge. You know, uh, we see some of these instances in the New Testament where this just bursts through. John, uh, doubting John, gets a lot of flack for being doubting. You know, he says, I'm not going to believe that Jesus, he, he really was crucified until I feel the holes in his body, you know. And, and then Jesus appears, and Jesus says, well, John, why don't you just uh, put your finger right there? And John does. Thomas. Thank you. <laughs> Thomas. <laughs> Clinging peel, Yes. You know, did you notice how long it took Angela to correct me? I think she was sifting through her biblical knowledge. She wasn't quite sure. Okay, you're right. Thomas in John gets a lot of flack. And Thomas Klingenpeel should get some flack too. But, uh, and he says, listen, 
Jesus says, put your finger right there, and Thomas does. And Thomas says, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. And I still remember Mike Cope saying in a sermon, finally, in the Gospel of John, someone has said it. John has been building up to this. My Lord and my God, the ultimate confession of faith. And so we see this breakthrough. We see it breakthrough in the, the hymn from Philippians 2 that I just uh, articulated to you. Until every knee bows and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Listen to how in early Christian writings we see this. Romans chapter 10 verse 9. If you confess with your lips that Jesus existed. Now. If you confess with your lips that you believe in Jesus. Now. If you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This was sort of the, I know you know I love this Latin, right? Sine qua non, without which not. It's the only Latin I know other than ipso facto, which I don't know what that means, but it sounds good. But at any rate, without which you don't really have a follower of Christ until they can say Jesus is Lord. Listen to how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 12, 3. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking by the Spirit of God ever says, let Jesus be accursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. God is at work sometimes through His Spirit to be able to cultivate in us a faith and an awareness. Okay, yes, I'm ready to say this. I'm ready to embrace that Jesus is indeed Lord. So to affirm Jesus as our Lord orients us to some things. It, 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 it arranges our life in some ways. <laughs> and first is to a life of discipleship. To a life of discipleship to a life of sacrifice and service, to a life of apprenticing ourselves to Jesus, our teacher, to a life of loving and giving and serving. All these are connoted by affirming Jesus is Lord. You know, I read an article uh, just this week, in fact, kind of doing preparation for this message, about the difference between saying Jesus is my Savior and saying Jesus is my Lord. Now, both are important and necessary. But the author was saying, if we only see Jesus, say Jesus is Savior and only think about Jesus as Savior, then we leave out a great deal about what we are invited to affirm and so I put this little schema here because I know we have engineers in the congregation. To say Jesus is my Savior is to say I understand that my sins have been forgiven by what Jesus has done for me on the cross. We talked about that last week, Jesus as sacrifice. But to say Jesus is my Lord is to say my life is now open to reorientation in all respects. To say Jesus is my Savior can impact just me. I'm forgiven. Praise God. Jesus is my Savior. But to say Jesus is my Lord impacts me 
and all around me. Uh, we can't keep that a secret. We can't hide that. To say Jesus is Lord is to not bow down to the various emperor cults, if you will. And that will get noticed. To, to say Jesus is my Savior essentially demands nothing of me. It gives me great assurance. And that's a good thing. That's part of the gospel. But as it doesn't demand really anything of me, to say Jesus is Lord demands everything of me. And that's why when Christians articulate that Jesus is my Savior, that's wonderful, wonderful, but they never talk much or articulate or focus on Jesus as Lord, they become sort of, if you will, emaciated, emaciated in their faith. Uh, and so Jesus is our Savior and our Lord. So this orients us to a life of discipleship. It orients us to a hope for eternity, to a hope for eternity. This is, this is huge for Christians. My, one of my favorite scriptures in the Bible, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 through 7, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus and into an inheritance that is imperishable, unfaded, un, unfading, and undefiled, kept in heaven for you who are being protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last day. In this you rejoice, even if for a little while. You endure various trials. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul talks about the perishable and the imperishable. He says we have perishable bodies now. The older you get, the more you know that it's perishing. <laughs> uh, and, but we'll have imperishable bodies for eternity. And he says, you know, I can't tell you, I can't, I'm almost rather be there. I'm almost rather be beyond this perishable body beyond this life but I want to be here but either way I rejoice and that is to have a living hope for eternity C.S. Lewis in his book The Great Divorce uh, tries to give us a portrayal of what heaven is like it's just a portrayal no one knows what heaven is like I mean you, you read fascinating books by people who said I died and you know I was in heaven for five minutes and I, I celebrate those. I don't, you know, I'm not a cynic. But the thing of what he talks about that is so stunning to me is the vividness, the vividness of heaven. He talks about a, a burbling brook and the sound of joy. He talks about blades of grass that can slice your foot. There's a vividness there. And we're given this hope because Jesus is Lord in eternity. People think, you know, heaven's depicted as little angel wings and playing harps and worshiping all day. Where do we get that? Well, we get it from Revelation, but where else do we get that? I mean, no. It's a vividness of living, a vividness of life, the new heavens and the new earth. And that's part of acknowledging Jesus as Lord. Well, what does Jesus promise us? He says, I want you to orient yourselves around me as Lord. This gives you a life of discipleship. It gives you a, a hope for eternity. What does Jesus 
promised us. I'd like you to answer that. Not necessarily aloud, because I don't like feedback or conversation. I'm in charge here. But uh, in your mind, how would you answer that? And Jesus promises us what? Well, I would suggest a number of things. Eternal life, let's see that. John 18, 19, John 18, 29 and 30. Excuse me, Luke 18, 29 and 30. Jesus says, truly I tell you, whoever has left father, mother, sister, brother, wife, children, anything for my sake and the sake of the gospel, I will give them much more in this life and the life to come. So we're promised eternal life. We're promised joy. Jesus says in John 15, 11, I have said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be made full. We're promised hardship. John 16, 33, In this world you have many afflictions, but take heart, I have conquered the world. We're promised suffering. Paul says in Romans 8, 18, and the sufferings we experience now, I would tell you, are not even comparable to the promises we have from God now and in the future. We're promised abundance. John chapter 10, verse 10. The thief comes to kill and steal and destroy. I come that you might have life and might have it abundantly. All these are promises. I would suggest, as, as I had to answer that question too, did any of you think of those words? Are any of you thinking coherently at all? Are you, you know, just, okay. You want to say what you were thinking, Betty? You thought what? Eternal life, good. Sagan? Hope, amen, amen. Anybody else? Astros, No? Okay. If I had to sum up what Jesus promises us, I'm walking on eggshells here because Anne's listening. And she's, gonna, she's so deep, you know, she's going to go. Oh. He promises us fullness. 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 In John 1.16, from his fullness we have all received Grace upon grace. Ephesians 1.19, I pray that you may know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Oh, gosh. Fullness of love, fullness of loss, fullness of happiness, fullness of sadness, fullness of abundance, fullness of scarcity, we're going to experience all those. And, and I think Jesus' promise is, I will be there with you to live it. To live it in its fullness. Because you don't have to be afraid of any of it. As painful as it may be, as ecstatic as it may be, you don't have to be afraid of any of it. Because I'm with you. And because you have affirmed me as Lord. I think at the end of John's gospel, before we get to chapter 21, he says, John says, I have written these things to you so you may come to believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and he has been raised from the dead. But he doesn't stop there. And that by believing in him, you have, may have life 
in his name. Fullness of life. So that you don't just skim through, you know, thinking of these utopian ideas when everything will be perfect. No, no, no. Experience it fully, and I am with you always, and there's nothing to be afraid of. So in closing, finally, right? Have you affirmed Jesus as Lord? Have you affirmed Jesus as Savior? I hope you have. He died to forgive my sins, and I put my faith and trust in that. Have you affirmed Jesus as your Lord? To follow him. Jesus says, he doesn't just talk about believing in me. He talks about following me following me. And he says, trust, trust that as inconvenient and or hard as this can get, it is worth it. That's my promise. I want to give you fullness of your life. And so have you affirmed Jesus as your Lord? I pray that you have. Will you affirm Jesus as your Lord? If you haven't, I pray that you will. Don't be scared. He says, I will be with you. Until every knee is bowed and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Oh, what promises you give us. And thank you that, that we don't have to worship Caesars and emperors and politicians and anybody else because we have Jesus Christ, your son, to worship. And we affirm him as our Lord. Thank you for all that means. Thank you for life and the fullness of life you give us. In the powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.